Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Dr. Charles Tatter, a world-renowned expert on concussions, brain, and spinal injuries. He is a professor of neurosurgery at the University of Toronto, the director of the Canadian Concussion Centre at Toronto Western Hospital, an officer of the Order of Canada, and a member of both the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame and Canada's Sports Hall of Fame. With enormous contributions to the world of spinal cord research and injury prevention, Charles has been a powerful and courageous change agent with a long-time commitment to making sports and recreation safer for everyone. Welcome, Charles, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Well, I'm in my uh, home uh, in the room I call my den. Uh, We live in Hogs Hollow. I was um, born in Toronto, a few miles from where I'm living now, but I'm a real local yokel. And so uh, (laughs) thinking of me as a legend is is, um, a lovely thought, Uh, but people have had incorrect thoughts for a long time. (laughs) Well, you certainly are a legend, and I'm looking forward to talking to you about all kinds of different things. Let's start with Happy New Year. How is Dr. Charles Tatter in 2023? What are you looking forward to in the year ahead? Well, I have a lot on my plate, um, as usual. I guess I like to be busy. Uh, I have um, had lifelong insomnia, so I get more done than usual because um, I don't sleep that much. Uh, So I've um, got lots of things to do. Like today, for example, I have to uh, finish editing a manuscript and um, write another paper. I'm very, I'm very busy, but I guess I like to be busy. Well, that's clearly the case. Uh, It's probably safe to say you are a medical professional rock star. The only comparably high-profile Toronto doctors I can think of are ER super doc, Dr. Brian Goldman, who's been a past guest of this podcast, and the late ophthalmologist, Dr. Tom Pashby. You've had a lifetime of commitment and work in medicine, the medical profession here. I want to go all the way back, if you don't mind, get the Charles Tatter story. You just alluded to it here, where you were born, but why don't you tell us when you were born and describe your upbringing? So... I was born in 1936 at the Toronto General Hospital, which is a part of the complex where I am still working. Uh, so I work at UHN, which is composed of Toronto General, Toronto Western, Toronto Rehab, Princess Margaret. So essentially, I was born in the hospital in which I work. Furthermore, uh, my sister was also born uh, at the UHN hospital, but at the Toronto Western. You know, I grew up in Russia on Rushome Road and then on Wembley Road, uh, then on in York Mills. And now I'm still up on the northern edge of the city in Hogs Hollow. All three children were born at the Toronto General. So we're really local yokels. My grandparents, though, were from Europe. So my father's family was from Poland. My mother's family was from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, to be uh, specific, in Galicia. The families have thrived uh, in Toronto. Lots of doctors in my family, a few lawyers, and uh, 
business people, school teachers. My daughter is a school teacher. My son is a real estate agent. So we're local yokels, except for my wife. My wife is a Detroiter. Okay. She was born in Detroit, and we met in northern Ontario at Camp Tamaqua. Uh, Camp Tamaqua is in Algonquin Park. It was started by a Detroiter. My wife was the first girl in that camp, and um, it was sort of a teenage um, romance that uh, turned into a long-range romance because it was Toronto-Detroit traveling. And then we were married in 1960. She moved to Toronto, and she's and she claimed that that was her last move. She's never moving again. So even though I did give some thought to moving elsewhere when things may have gotten a little rough for me uh, during growth and development, but she said, if you if you go somewhere, you go alone. So <laughs> I got that message, and we we stayed in Toronto, and uh, I've I've really enjoyed life in Toronto. I think I've been blessed uh, in Toronto. It's a great place to grow up. I don't want to put you on the spot. What anniversary number are we at, Charles? We are only at about sixty-four. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Isn't well, that amazing? Congratulations. It is amazing. I want to ask you about Toronto at the time when you were born, what it was like. Now, what did your parents do? Uh, my father was a businessman. He was in the scrap metal business. He worked for his father. It was a family business. My uncle worked in that business as well. My mother uh, was a secretary before she married, and she did not work as a as a wife and mother but she she did a lot of uh, charity work she belonged to a number of organizations very committed to what was called Hadassah and she um was a very energetic you know hard driving woman who was obsessed with her children's becoming educated mhm she wanted me to be a dentist. My father wanted me to be a lawyer. So I disappointed both of them. <laughs> you can't win them all. You, Charles, you're a huge disappointment. Yeah. Uh, I think it's it, it, the, the ethos of the time. And certainly you could even argue today, everyone wants their children to become professionals. I think now kids have a lot more opportunity. It's not seen as a bad thing to be an entrepreneur or what have you. But yeah. what was the Toronto like that you grew up in and that you remember? Well, for me, life was a bowl of cherries, if you if you know what that expression means. Yes. Like, I was really blessed as a youngster. Um, I was, you know, I always had lots of friends. I had lots of opportunities. And I was quite uh, free to choose what I wanted to do, even though my mother... My mother was probably the first helicopter mother before <laughs> helicopters were invented. Uh, she watched over me. I think I think she was um, traumatized by the amount of illness in her own family, and also my father was always ill. 
my father had very serious heart disease and then died as a young man. So the specter of uh, trouble was always there. And maybe that's what made me want to be a physician. The fact that, you know, I grew up with a lot of problems, health problems in family and friends. My sister, for example, had polio and she was paralyzed uh, from that, but made a spectacular recovery. So I think I gravitated towards the health field, probably because of what I witnessed as a, as a youngster growing up, although it didn't dawn on me that I should be a doctor until I um, had to make that choice. Like one summer, we in the old days, you'd get your marks and then the marks would come out in mid-August. And then by the time of September 1st rolled around, you had to make a choice. And I always did well in school. I liked school. And um, I could do whatever I wanted to do because I had sufficient marks. But I surprised everybody when I said, okay, I'll be a doctor. (laughs) But I guess it was that early experience of illness in the family that made its way into my brain and said, better better do that. Well, and a doctor you became. I don't want to do your education and work history a disservice, but I'm going to kind of quickly go through it just because... I could spend hours going over everything you've accomplished, but let me give the listeners a flavor, if I may. You graduated from the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto in 1961. This was your MD. You pursued graduate studies and entered the neurosurgery training program at University of Toronto again, 1965, this earning you your master's and PhD. You became a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada in 1969, joining the neurological staff at Sunnybrook Medical Center in 1969. You moved to the Toronto Western Hospital, where you became neurosurgeon-in-chief in in 1985, appointed chairman of the Division of Neurosurgery at the University of Toronto in 1989. Ever since then, you've been contributing your work as both part of the University of Toronto and at Toronto Western Hospital. Charles, the story goes that in the 1970s, while working as a neurosurgeon, you dedicated yourself to sports safety after five hockey players in a 13-month stretch became quadriplegics because of broken necks, suffered from hits from behind. Comment on that, please. You know, that was one of the most distressing things to me, to have to treat young people who were quadriplegic as a result of the game that I loved as a kid. Like, I played hockey every day, in the winter from the time I was a kid to the time pretty well I graduated as an MD. I even played for the Faculty of Medicine. So hockey was really part of my life. And then as a neurosurgeon, I was forced to try to put the pieces back together again in young people who broke their necks playing hockey. I could hardly believe it. And one winter, I think we had three or four young people who ended up in wheelchairs. Yes, we could put the bones back together, but we could not heal their spinal cords very well. And so that became a very compelling thing for me. And I wanted to do something about it. Now, 
I had already focused my career on spinal cord injury. That really grabbed my attention very early on. And we started a, a spinal cord injury unit at Sunnybrook, part of the trauma center there. It was the first of its kind in the country. And uh, that's why we did see a lot of players who, who had spinal cord injuries. And we figured out that there was one principal mechanism that was involved, and that was being hit from behind into the boards, being catapulted into the boards so that by the time they hit the boards, their body was horizontal because they really couldn't uh, right themselves because they were struck from behind, unsuspecting, crashed into the boards, and the poor neck was crunched between the head impacting on the boards and the aftercoming body, and the bones broke and, for, and shattered and crushed the spinal cord. And I couldn't believe when I looked through the rule book that there was no specific penalty at that time for hitting from behind. I couldn't believe it. And we went to Hockey Canada, and sure enough, they were very cooperative. And we created a rule that said no hits from behind. And there was another gentleman whose name I've forgotten who created the stop sign, which kids sewed on the back of their jersey. So as a reminder to the oncoming player, don't hit me from behind. You can break my neck. And sure enough, I teamed up with Tom Pashby. You mentioned Dr. Tom Pashby. He was a great injury prevention doctor. He was an ophthalmologist who prevented many blind eyes by some major campaigns. Warnings, for example, squash players should wear goggles because you can get a squash ball in the eye that can blind your eye. Hockey players should wear masks because you can get a blind eye if the, if the stick hits you in the eye, if a puck hits you in the eye. So Tom Pashby sort of taught me how to do injury prevention. And that was a big thing because nobody was really doing a lot of injury prevention in those days, especially in my field of brain and spinal cord injury. So I started a charity called Think First Canada, fashioned after a similar one in the United States called Think First USA. So we, we created Think First Canada. And then a few years later, that merged to form Parachute Canada. We merged with three other organizations. So I've actually started two charities for injury prevention and parachute canada is that is a is canada's national injury prevention agency and they still are preaching a lot of programs on prevention of broken necks and broken heads in sports i'm very pleased to continue to be part of their think tank and um, they do very good work on preventing because it's much easier to prevent than to try to put the pieces back together again afterwards. 
Well, certainly, Charles, that's been a message that uh, I, I saw very clearly as I looked into your whole background. With injuries, you can talk about prevention and treatment. As you know, you believe we should focus on the front end of the problem, focus on prevention. Another big initiative of yours is that you have advocated for changing the age for body checking in hockey, recommending it be introduced at age 18 instead of 13, as currently mandated under Hockey Canada's jurisdiction. What was the reaction to your suggestion, recommendation that the age for body checking be moved back to 18? You know, I'm disappointed that there hasn't been more attention to that. We did a lot of research on this to come up with that recommendation. We looked through about 20 years of records to see why kids are getting concussions in hockey. And body checking turned out to be the most common cause of lasting results from concussion. So body checking as a cause of concussion, plus more severe concussions, the the ones that don't get better within a few weeks. Most of them get better within a few weeks, but about 25% don't. And a lot of those in hockey are due to body checking. And a lot of them are due to those younger kids during the formative years the brain seems to be especially vulnerable to bangs on the head. So if you really want to keep kids playing the game, because the game that I loved, I want to see kids play hockey, but I want to see them play and survive years of playing with normal brains, not kids who can't remember what they had for breakfast or kids who are dizzy, or who are having headaches and uh, anxiety, depression, and even suicide. We've We've had some kids who actually, because they became so depressed after multiple concussions, committed suicide. So we're dealing with, you know, significant problems just from body checking. So look, Let's let's get kids playing hockey. A lot of a lot of parents have taken their kids out of hockey because they know that concussions occur. But one way to do it is to play it the way the girls play it. You know that in the 1990s, the girls banned body checking from hockey. That was an international movement, which the Canadian a uh, component said, yes, that's a great idea. Let's get rid of body checking. And they did. And it's still a great game. So boys hockey can also be a great game without body checking. So let's not end up with a lot of casualties who can no longer play the game. And you know what? When we looked into why NHLers have have frequently had to retire early. One of the most important and common reasons is too many concussions. And a lot of people just don't get better from concussions. Look at this Tua Tagliaboa for the Miami Dolphins right now. He's had three concussions in the last 
three or four months, he's not playing in the uh, in the finals because of that. He may never play again. So why do we need those casualties? It's not good. Like it's not good when kids can't remember what they had for breakfast just because they played hockey and body checked. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Dr. Charles Tatter, please check out the more than 100 additional episodes available anytime. We've got White Coat Black Arts Dr. Brian Goldman, Canadian Ambassador to the United Nations Bob Ray, Radio Legend Ted Wallishan, and the fastest man on the planet, Donovan Bailey. So many great behind-the-scenes stories directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. And Charles, when you talk about problems with concussions and spinal cord injuries, there's really been kind of three issues you've focused on. You talked a little about hitting from behind and putting rules in place so that's not allowed. You've just talked about your recommendation that body checking be introduced at a later age, in this case, 18. The third thing maybe you can make a comment on is headshots. Well, headshots can be really damaging. And by head, when I, when I think of headshots, I think of everything from a punch to the head because fighting should not be allowed in hockey. You, you get a penalty, but, but, what you know? What's a two-minute penalty? Why not a suspension for six months if you throw a punch? What? Why should you be allowed to hit somebody in the head with your stick, or elbow to the head, or shoulder to the head? Remember Scott Stevens? Sure. He was he was the shoulder knockout artist. He was so athletic. He was such a great player. He had such great body movement that just just with a shoulder to the head, he could knock somebody out. Well, that shouldn't be allowed. Those were deliberate hits. Those were not accidents. Those are deliberate hits. So we can make the game better. Now, a lot of parents have have noticed that and have signed their kids up for non-contact leagues, which I think is you know, it was a good move, but I think all all leagues should ban body checking until age 18. You know, I want to bring up something interesting, Charles. I coach a ringette, and uh, as you know, you talk about girls hockey, ringette, there's no body contact. But I have to report to you, anecdotally, we've had a huge increase in the number of concussion issues in ringette, a non-contact sport. One of the things, I think, is because we understand it better, it's been diagnosed so to speak better we've been better in terms of having protocols to deal with it but i also learned from this whole experience that you don't need a shot to the head to get a concussion do you want to talk a little about that very good point we have learned that it's the acceleration of the brain that causes concussion by acceleration i mean when you set the brain in motion inside the skull. So the brain moves in one direction, essentially, and the skull moves in another. It's like jiggle of the brain. So jiggle of the brain is rotational acceleration. To and fro movement of the brain, like backwards and forwards, is linear acceleration. And both of those mechanisms can result in concussion. And the problem is contact that sets it in motion. 
So I don't know the game of ringette well, but I think it it's worthwhile thinking what is the reason for accelerating the brain like that? Is it, you know, body contact? Is it hitting the ground? Uh, is it is it the ball itself, or what? What is it in ringette that? What do you think it is? Uh, yeah. Andrew? Well, it's a, it's an interesting observation because, as you note, sometimes it does come from inadvertent contact. Sometimes helmet to helmet, but sometimes it is the word you used, acceleration, that really resonates. These young ladies are moving at a tremendous speed, and when something suddenly stops that acceleration, as you've so nicely described, and this is what I've learned from my own experiences, this brain going one way, skull going the other way, uh, it's been a real revelation that you don't need a direct hit to the head, and this whiplash can, can be another cause of concussion and brain trauma. And certainly how we've dealt with it has improved greatly in terms of the right to return uh, return to school, return to play protocols, which have been so important. Charles, in this area, uh, era, I guess, of sound bites, everything has to be reduced. I want to summarize your overall message. How much is one brain worth? Would that be your overall message? And we'll talk a little <laughs> about that. Yeah, that that's a terrific question because, um, you know, my feeling is you get one brain. Brain is extremely precious. You know, the we, we think of the heart as being the soul, but you know what? The soul is in the brain. The heart doesn't do any thinking. The heart is, you know, traditionally thought of as the seat of emotion, but that's that's wrong. It's in the brain. So all of your emotions, all of your memories all of your movements, um, all of your thoughts come from the brain, and you only get one. So you have to protect it. And it doesn't mean that you should put yourself in a, you know, a glass case and never move, but you do have to be careful. Tall people, for example, if you're tall, you're at a greater risk. I have a lot of patients who even get concussed jumping into a car because the, some cars are so low and if you're six foot four your head often won't clear the doorway of a car without you know ducking as you put your head underneath so you just have to continually be cognizant of the fact that that blow to the head, no matter what you're doing, can cause a whiplash. Like going downstairs in an older home with a very low ceiling in the basement, and especially on stairs, people run downstairs and they whack their head on the overlying protrusions of the stairway, not realizing how low it is and how tall they are. So we just have to be more careful about trying to avoid whacking your head. And I'm I'm glad you mentioned whiplash because until about 20 years ago, doctors couldn't figure out what was whiplash and what was concussion. And they called them all whiplash. And there was like a huge number of legal cases and whatnot. At least half of those were concussions because the mechanism of whiplash of the neck and concussion of the brain is exactly the same. It's rotational or linear acceleration that causes whiplash of the neck 
and it causes concussion of the brain. And the old literature confuses the two. Uh, nowadays, we recognize that they are different entities, but they can both occur simultaneously. We have a lot of people who get a whiplash of the neck and a concussion of the brain from the same motor vehicle crash, for example. Motor vehicle crashes are a major cause of concussion. And there again, we haven't done enough to prevent them. There's another area where prevention needs to be expanded. Yes, we have seatbelts. Seatbelts are marvelous. Seatbelts prevent a lot of injuries to the brain and the neck. In the old days, patients would come into the hospital having been thrown out of the automobile onto the roadway and run over or thrown into the ditch and they break their neck or they break their heads when they hit the ground because they catapulted out of the car without a seatbelt. The doors used to fling open and the passengers would go flying out the doors. And that doesn't happen anymore. Like seatbelts and airbags that deploy properly save countless concussions and broken necks and broken heads. But we're, we're still not sa as safe as we should be in automobiles. There's a lot of rejigging that needs to be done, according to our recent uh, research, to try to prevent uh, motor vehicle crash injuries. Well, along the lines of you describing how it wasn't that long ago that people didn't differentiate between whiplash and concussions, with concussions, there's unlike any other injury in the sense that there's no definitive diagnostic test that shows exactly what you're dealing with in the way you can for an ACL tear or a hamstring pull. Those you can figure out. They're quite obvious. Where are we in terms of looking for a biomarker or a biological evidence that will verify a brain injury has occurred? Well, those are great questions. And in fact, those are some of the questions that I wanted to answer when I decided about 25 years ago that I was going to include concussions in my concern for trauma uh, and how to prevent the trauma of concussion. And we're still at it. We're just scratching the surface with concussion. I'm quite disappointed that we're not farther along. And it's not for lack of trying, because there's an army of people out there, and we, we meet regularly. And for example, Canada has been at the forefront of concussion recognition, concussion prevention, concussion research. We now have what's called the Canadian Concussion Network that has gotten together. So there's there's a big army of people now trying to figure this out. And it's amazing to me that we're not farther along. We have made gains. There's no question, like we just talked about differentiating concussion from whiplash. So we've come a long way, but we don't have a single reliable biomarker. And we use the term nowadays, biomarker, to signify both imaging biomarkers like 
skull x-rays, MRI, CT scans, etc. And also body fluid biomarkers. So we look for biomarkers even in saliva or spinal fluid or blood. And for example, if you get a whack on the head that's strong enough, little, you might say, bits of your brain end up in your bloodstream. Can you believe that? No, that's shocking. (laughs) It's shocking, but it happens. Can you imagine that? It's not really a piece of the brain, but but they are chemicals uh, released from the brain, particularly proteins that end up in your spinal fluid. And there's a whole bunch of them that we've learned how to recognize. And but they're not specific. They're not specific enough. So here we are, 25 years into research on concussion, and people still need somebody like me to diagnose, yes, it's a concussion, or no, it's not a concussion. We can't do an MRI. We can't do a CAT scan. We can't do a blood test. Like you go to the emergency now, and you, if you have signs of a heart attack or symptoms of a heart attack. And what one of the first things they do is a blood test because it's very accurate to diagnose a heart attack with a blood test. We can't do that with a concussion. We're not there yet. We're trying a lot of people and a lot of money has gone into it from uh, pharmaceutical companies and chemistry companies looking for a reliable biomarker. Maybe it'll come tomorrow, but it's not there today. So they still need, patients still need somebody like me who's gone to the trouble of training themselves. And nowadays there are a lot of doctors who have done the same, who know what they're doing and can diagnose a concussion on the basis of the symptoms and the signs. Of course, if you've been knocked out cold, that's easy. You've had at least a concussion. Maybe you've had a brain injury of greater severity, but if you've been knocked out, it's at least a concussion. But that only happens in less than 5%. Like the boxing knockout is a typical concussion, but that only happens in about 5% or less of concussions. So Charles, we were told not that long ago, and when I say we, I mean the parent of any child signed up for any sport the organization said we got it all covered baseline testing no less an authority than you have declared baseline testing useless it's true we still feel it's a waste of time and a waste of money especially with children and that includes during teenage life as well that kids are learning so much as they get older. Like the difference between a 13-year-old and a 14-year-old is dramatic. You can tell the difference. Well, the baseline that they had when they were 13 isn't their baseline when they're 14. So you'd have to do the baseline maybe every hour to get an accurate baseline. So that becomes impossible. So that's one reason why. And the other reason is that they could be fudged. Fudging of the baseline, meaning that kids were gaming the game, in other words. 
they got on to the fact that, well, if I don't do well uh, on the baseline, they won't be able to tell if I had a concussion. So that's what we were faced with for those two reasons, but especially the first reason, I think it's a waste of time and money. And it's much better to put our money into teaching kids how to recognize it themselves. That's really important. And teaching them why it's important to self-recognize when you may have had a concussion and teaching all the adults around them. Nowadays, in terms of prevention of concussion and detection of concussion, we want everybody, like Joe Citizen, should know what a concussion is all about so that, so that that person can diagnose it themselves and diagnose it in their kids, diagnose it in their teammates, diagnose it if you're, you know, coaching a team. If you're coaching a team, you have to know how to recognize. You don't have to diagnose it, but you have we we use the term recognize. What we want everybody to learn how to do is to recognize when a concussion may have returned. Let's still depend on doctors and nurses to actually make the diagnosis, but everybody else associated with kids and the kids themselves should be responsible for learning how to recognize when a concussion might have occurred. Everything you're talking about on the front pages, still today, you alluded to this a little, Charles, before, brain injuries and concussions back on the front page with the NFL season, the absolutely crazy situation around Miami Dolphins quarterback Tua Tagovailoa. The issue that came to the forefront with him is, does it matter how many concussions you have had? Because recovery gets more difficult with each occurrence. What are your comments on the whole Tua situation and what we've learned from that? Well, you know... I watched him get those concussions, uh, and there's no doubt that uh, the the observer who got fired probably should have gotten fired because the, the quote-unquote trained observer didn't recognize what everyone else recognized, and that you know when you stumble off the field, you've had a concussion. Stumbling is not a, a normal way to walk off the field. So if you stumble, you can give it, you know, fancy terms. We call it a taxia, but he stumbled off the field. It wasn't recognized as a concussion. So they've added that. I'm really impressed with the F NFL. The NFL has, you know, cost them a billion dollars. Not a million dollars, but a billion dollars. That's a lot of that's a lot of uh, money to spend on blowing the diagnosis of concussion. Like they they blew it for a long time, and they didn't know they were blowing it. But then when they found out, and and they found out the hard way of writing a check for a billion, they decided to do something about it. And the head doctor for the NFL is a neurosurgeon like myself, not not a sports medicine. Well, he's he's also a sports medicine doctor, but he's a neurosurgeon because 
br the brain is a pretty important organ. So it's quite telling that the NFL has a neurosurgeon as their chief medical officer. And it, his name is Dr. Alan Sills. And I've met him several times. He's a very good guy. He's smart. And he's tried his best to improve the detection and management of concussions in the NFL. I really give him full marks. And I give the NFL full marks now. They didn't behave like 10 years ago, but they're trying their best now. I think it's really obvious. And look at the way they helped DeMar Hamlin. That was also, you know, not in my field, but fantastic change, you know, to rush out onto the field, make the diagnosis that this guy was in, you know, trouble provide electroshock to the heart and get the heart going again. I mean, and now the guy walks out of hospital. That is, you know, instead of taking the body to the funeral home, he's back in his home, not the funeral home. So, it, it, I mean, that's fantastic. And that's another example of the NFL getting it right. But in the concussion field, they de they really did get it right but they didn't get it perfect yeah but but they're now self-correcting so they fired the guy who missed it and they added this unsteadiness of gate to the sim to the signs that they have to watch for and if a player has it out of the game well as you noted it was incredible and the observation was made that it, DeMar Hamlin was, quote, lucky it happened to him during a football game. If that had happened to him in a mall or down the street, very different. So it's amazing. So you give the NFL top marks. We need to talk about NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman. He claimed there is no connection between hockey violence and CTE, which is brain degeneration, to which you, Dr. Tatter, answered with two words, Steve Montador. Talk about that exchange and what you meant with those two words. Well, it's a fantastic story. Have, have you got an hour? <laughs> I got all the time in the world for you, sir. You know, it's an amazing story with Steve Montador because his father, Paul Montador, was one of the ones who helped me start Think First Canada because his father, Paul, was the president of Johnson and Johnson of Canada. That's a pretty important position. And I went to actually his predecessor and asked him to help us with our injury prevention program. And he said, yes, I'll help you. And he gave us a lot of money and he gave us a lot of other things that helped Think First get started. And we ended up with about 20 chapters across the country. And when Paul Montador succeeded this other person and became president of Johnson & Johnson, he did the same thing. He just put his efforts into helping injury prevention. And I think one of the reasons why it resonated with him was because his son, Steve Montador, 
was a fantastic hockey player and he made it all the way to the NHL. And then tragedy struck this young man. He got a whole bunch of concussions. And how did I know that? Well, I knew his father and his father was on our board. And I, I would commiserate with them every time his son got a concussion, et cetera, et cetera. And ultimately, one NHL game that I went to with his father and his aunt, in fact, I sat watching him play against the Vancouver Canucks. But anyway, I saw the game where Steve Montador actually scored a goal. And it was so exciting to be in the stands with his father when he scored the goal. And afterwards, we went to the dressing room and he started to tell me. And, and when I met him, I met Steve and I told him what I do. And he told me he's had some concussions. And he said to me, well, Doc, you can have my brain mm. because we had already started a brain bank to try to improve the diagnosis of CTE. CTE stands for chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And sure enough, to make a long story short, Steve died. He was 35 when he died. Can you believe that? And it was one tragedy after another. And sure enough, when he died, his father made sure that we got the brain. Because we don't want we don't want premature donations. Yes. But the only way we're going to learn more about the ravages of repetitive concussions is by careful examination of the patient when they're alive and of the brain when they die. And that's what happened with Steve Montador. And I count, I myself counted the number of concussions that he had, known concussions. Mm. And he had 19. Wow. And his brain showed CTE. He was 35. And he had it already in his brain at age 35. So CTE is a real thing. It's not in the imagination of the doctors. It's real. But just like everything else about concussion, it's not easy to make the diagnosis. And believe it or not, you cannot make the diagnosis in the living person. Mm. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. That in this 2023 year, we still can't examine a player, for example, and say, you have CTE. Cannot be done. But we can make the diagnosis by examining the brain. That's a terrible position to be in for those of us in this field. And maybe tomorrow someone will come up with a way to diagnose it in the living. But we're not there yet. Well, we aren't there yet. And to many, the debate over CTE, concussions, 
in hockey is a battle between medical expertise and profits. Dr. Tatter, your quote, NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman sells violence. He makes money for NHL team owners, and they love him and won't dislodge him. It's a problem that has been created, but I think it's a problem that can be solved. Has Commissioner Gary Bettman ever taken you up on your offer to personally walk him through the scientific facts? No, he hasn't. But I'll give you some information that he does support financially our annual concussion symposium. We have we have every year, and this year it's coming up in April. We have an annual meeting of concussion experts where we discuss this type of issue. And you know that the NHL gives us money to have to hold this meeting because you can't hold it, you know, on the sidewalk. We have to rent a room. We have to. <laughs> you know, have uh, microphones and whatnot. So it costs money. And if we want to have world-class speakers, we can't ask them to come on their own ticket. We have to pay their ticket. So it costs us money to put on this conference. And to his credit, Gary Bettman has been giving us money to have this conference for many years. Doesn't give us a huge amount, but we do get some. So Time is going to solve indecisiveness, let's call it, this this controversy about how important this is. I'll tell you what has happened, and, th- and this shows up even in our own data, because we've now examined almost 50 brains, and all of these people have been athletes, and, and the vast majority of those 50 have been professional athletes, although we have had some amateurs who have played for a long time in contact sports that we have in our program. In fact, we want to expand this program, If we, and we just talked about this the other day, to expand it to amateurs. It would cost us a lot of money, which we don't have. We have raised $10 million over the years for concussion research but how much how much do you think one brain is worth well it comes it comes back to your big message how much is one brain worth and i think one of the things to kind of summarize your what you're talking about now is we know better and we will do better so yes continues we, to evolve i, I want to talk that's good yeah. yeah, we're always improving. That's the message I'm getting from you. I want to ask you about one thing that caught my eye about your career. You were a pioneer in the use of the halo vest. And to me, Joe Citizen, I, I, I kind of can visualize that and I've seen it. Is that still a, a tool that is in use today? And, and how big a game changer was that when you brought that into use? Well, it's true that I was one of the first in Canada to apply this to a lot of patients who ended up with unstable spines uh, after a major injury to the neck. And it did help us get people up and around. I think it saved lives. In fact, we, we used to have to keep people in bed for weeks under traction because we were so afraid to let them up before the bones fused. Now we can fuse the bones readily. Like we, we have learned so much 
about the spine. Like we we can fuse the bones of a shattered spine. It's incredible to me how much we have learned. And so we almost have outlived the usefulness of the halo device. You know, time moves on. I'm I'm delighted to stop using it. Patients hated it, but it did allow them, instead of lying in bed for three months and getting blood clots in their legs and traveling to the heart and stuff like that, uh, and muscle wasting and all the problems of lying in bed for three months till the bones healed, we don't have to do that. And now we have developed ways of fusing the spine with internal and you can think of the halo as being an external fusion device, but now we can implant those fusion devices very readily and safely, and they don't crack and they don't get rusty. I mean, it's just fabulous what we now can do. And so we seldom use the halo now. We still, we haven't thrown them out totally. There's still the odd patient that, has such a shattered spine that we have to use it, but it's rare to have to use it now. Thank goodness. Well, as you say, it's a good thing to see uh, something you introduced maybe on the way out. Yeah. You've been great with your time. I do want to close with some loose ends, if I may. I want to get your comment on our Toronto Maple Leafs. It's kind of shocking to me, someone who has not seen a championship in my life and has gone, we're into our 56th, campaign with nothing 18th year not even getting through the first round and i've had people say to me but you aren't going to believe this there was a time when the leafs won so much that if we missed the parade one year we just said ah, i'll catch up with it next year what, what do you remember about that because you were a leaf fan in the times when winning was like getting up in the morning we we used to win all the time just as you said and that's another story because Living next door to me was the official photographer for the Toronto Maple Leafs. His name was Lou Tarofsky. The Tarofsky brothers were the official photographers. And when I, when I was five years old, he took me to my first hockey game and introduced me. We went into the dressing room and he introduced me to Teeter Kennedy and Sil Apps. Can you believe that? And I would regularly accompany him to the games. I saw a lot of hockey at, at the Maple Leaf Gardens when I was a kid um, because of that. Besides which, one of my cousins sold programs in the lobby. And my uncle was a telegrapher sending messages from one arena to the other about who scored the last goal. <laughs> So hockey was in my family, was in my blood and in my neighborhood. And my next door neighbor was a famous hockey photographer. And Toronto Maple Leafs used to win all the time. Now they, you know, when was the last time we won the Stanley Cup? I think it was in the 60s. That's the problem, Charles. I can't tell you when they last won. It's, it's got to be this year. I think something that's amazing is in the last hour, you and I have become such good, close friends. I'm at the risk of uh, reversing that 
uh, by potentially insulting you. So I hope you take this in the right way. You'll understand what I'm trying to get at. You are 86 years old. You are as vibrant as ever. You are on top of your game. What is your uh, secret sauce to life and to, I mean, people must say this all the time. When are you going to retire? You have put in all the work. When are you going to hit the beach and just enjoy retirement? You know, I have almost never thought about retiring. I'm having too good a time. And when I've helped somebody, and it may be, you know, recovering from a concussion or recovering from a broken neck, whatever it is, somehow when somebody says thank you, and especially when somebody says, like some of my previous patients say, well, thank you, you saved my life. I mean, do you know what that means? Like when somebody says that to you, so I'm still enjoying what I do and hopefully it'll last, you know, forever. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, you know, I'm a cancer survivor as well. Mm. I don't know. We didn't talk about that, but I've had cancer and I, I beat it. Unfortunately, I had, I had bowel cancer and had half my large bowel removed for it, but it, hadn't spread anywhere. I was so fortunate. I had six months of chemotherapy. And um, I think about that, but I want to stay what I'm stay at what I'm doing for forever. Fabulous. Well, I know you work with a lot of young physicians, and you always do pay it forward, as they say. I want to give a shout out to my nephew, Dr. David Mikomiski, who is a freshly minted neurological radiologist at Quinty Health in Prince Edward County. Charles, what is your game day speech to up-and-coming medical professionals like young David Mikomiski? Well, I think the opportunities to help people are everywhere. And I think it's one of the greatest things you can do in life to help somebody. We're very fragile. Everything about we're so complicated in our brains and in and everything about our beings that if you can help people through life and help them make their lives healthier longer more meaningful i think the young doctors today can do so much more than we could do and make a difference to people like we're able to do so much i think it's one i think it's such a blessing for people to help people and doctors are given that opportunity like hourly so what could be better than that people helping people a great yeah. message to close off on Dr. Tatter, where can we best follow you, learn more about sports injury prevention and treatment? Do, do we follow social media, or is there a certain website you like people to go to? You know, uh, our website, which is Canadian Concussion Center, uhn.ca, Canadian Concussion Center, uhn.ca, is full of great information about injury prevention and treatment of things like concussion. Um, we have a webinar series that's sponsored by the Labor's International Union of North America, Ontario branch, 
for people with persisting concussion symptoms. So if you're if you're listening to this podcast and you've got headaches, dizziness, PTSD, you watch our webinar series and you'll learn something about how to manage your concussion symptoms. So that would be that would be good. We have we have a lot of people who have benefited from that website. That as I think that's a great example. The other example is parachute.ca, which has a lot of injury prevention information on it as well, you know, about driving, about poisons, uh, about falls in the elderly. Boy, if you're listening to this and you're over 60 or 70, falls are, are take such a toll. You know, don't be a hero as you get older. Do not fall. Falls can be catastrophic. Many old people end their lives after a fall. So you be careful. And in, and in Canada, and in particularly in Ontario, with the roads freezing and then thawing and freezing, it's it can be treacherous. Falls are a biggie in the winter. So prevent prevent falls. Prevention has certainly been the message I got today. Let's work on the prevention part. And of course, the treatment keeps developing. Charles, I've really enjoyed our time today. It was fantastic to meet you and get to know you and hit, hear all your stories. And uh, I, I wish you uh, excellent times going forward, 2023 and beyond. Well, thank you, Andrew. I enjoyed meeting you too. And thanks for asking me. It was my pleasure. And to the listeners, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. And on behalf of Dr. Charles Tatter, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundal from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.